This is Trump Watch. I'm John Wiener, live in L.A. on 90.7 KPFK, talking about what Trump is actually doing, not just what he's tweeting. Later in the show, the trial of the Chicago 7, the new Aaron Sorkin film. It's the most widely reviewed movie in America right now. 250 critics have written about it. Of course, it's about the trial of leaders of the anti-war protests at the Democratic National Convention in 1968 in Chicago. The indicted included Abby Hoffman, Jerry Rubin, Tom Hayden, Rennie Davis, Bobby Seale, Dave Dellinger, John Freunds, and Lee Weiner. And we have a conversation with Lee Weiner about the movie and what really happened coming up later in the show. Also, this week more than ever, we need a bit of relief from the election. Maybe the new Borat movie? Sasha Baron Cohen's return with his memorable character from, in quotes, Kazakhstan. But of course, it's all about President McDonald Trump, Ella Taylor, our TV critic, will talk about Borat's subsequent movie film. But first, some serious talk about President McDonald Trump and his re-election campaign. For that, we turn, of course, to Harold Meyerson. He's editor-at-large of The American Prospect. Harold, welcome back. Always good to be here, John. Well, we're speaking at midday on Wednesday. We have some new polls that are pretty amazing. The ABC Washington Post poll of Wisconsin shows Biden ahead by 17 points, 57 to 40. Am I reading this right? Could this be a typo? Uh, it, it, it could be, I suppose. But uh, I, I think that's what they what they came up with. Uh, Wisconsin is is a state that has famously oscillated left and right. It was a classic state of the progressive movement and Robert LaFollette on the one hand, it was the state of the backlash movement of Joe McCarthy on the other hand. And, uh, you know, under prompting from Trump, it looks like it's in this poll, it looks like it's back to the La Follette state. Uh, it's uh, certainly, if, if anything, even remotely uh, resembling this is what happens in the election there. Uh, it, it clearly, you know, makes all the Republican moves, one of which was just affirmed by uh, the Republican justices on the Supreme Court about curtailing, uh, the, you know, mail ballots if they, if they come in a, a day or two late. Uh, it, it makes all of that just moot because the margin is so large, uh, a Biden victory becomes unblockable. And, and basically, that's what Democrats have to hope for nationally uh, in the election, because uh, various kinds of Republican chicanery um, in, in changing voting rules in uh, Republican-run states and Trump-appointed judges upholding such moves become moot if, if uh, Biden's victory margin is so large that it doesn't really matter. Yeah, and that uh, ABC Washington Post poll is rated A-plus by Nate Silver. You know, it's the best poll that we have. There have been other recent polls that show Biden ahead in the key state of Michigan uh, by as little as seven or as much as 13 points. Uh, Michigan is another state that, you know, it's many, many things depend on Michigan. It, they certainly do. Um, you know, I mean, I suspect this is a confluence of greater uh, Democratic mobilization in the 
major cities of those states and in cities like Detroit and Milwaukee, which were more or less uh, under campaigned in by the Clinton campaign in 2016. And it reflects, I think, the uh, switch of a lot of uh, somewhat Republican suburbs, particularly suburban women, into the Democratic camp after four years of having to uh, put up with Donald Trump. And how are we feeling about Pennsylvania and Florida? Well, Pennsylvania and Florida are somewhat closer, but in all the polls, Biden still maintains a lead in those states. Those are also states uh, in Florida, where the Republicans control all the levers of state government, and in Pennsylvania, where they still control the legislature, though not the uh, executive branch. Uh, so, you know, there, there may well be uh, some mischief. The Democrats have done a lot more in Philadelphia this year than Hillary Clinton's campaign did in 2016. I know that uh, the Democrats have assiduously campaigned uh, around Orlando and Miami and some other parts of Florida, probably somewhat more than the Clinton campaign did. And of course, Florida also has that uh, $100 million injection from Mike Bloomberg, who who sort of become the personification of the Republican going over to Biden and maybe the wealthiest personification of uh, Republican going over to Biden. So uh, we'll see. But they're still very much in play. The the four major undecided. Pennsylvania is still somewhat Democratic. Uh, Florida, North Carolina and Georgia are they're 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 still pretty darn close. In fact, uh, Georgia in particular, uh, in a number of recent polls, looks like uh, the race is tied there. So, you know, Mm -hmm. anything could anything could happen. Well, I want to pull the lens back here and talk about what I consider the big problem in American politics, white men. And I think you and I both have standing to talk about white men since we are a part of this problematic group. We've been uh, white men for a long time. <laughs> so, so we do have standing. Um, if you look at the polls, you know, there's a recent poll from Pew Research that has Trump leading Biden among white men 53 to 41. And among older white men, even more are for Trump. You know, people of color, young people are part of the Obama coalition and overwhelmingly for Biden. This is not a new divide. White men have been supporting Republicans for decades, but the the gap seems to be much, much bigger this year than ever before. And let us also note it at the same time, white men are a smaller proportion of the American population every year. Now there's something like 30%. How, how should we understand white men? Well, I, I, I wrote a, a piece for, for my magazine, The Prospect, that looked at uh, that looked at this. Uh, it was partly in response to a, a New York Times Sunday Review article that noted the persistence and the widening of the gender gap, particularly among whites, that women are generally decisively breaking for Biden, even as white men stick with Trump. But it overlooked, it, it kind of mentioned in passing, but I thought it deserved more than a passing mention, that there's a real gap among white men, and the gap is between those uh, with uh, college educations and those without. In fact, it was a bigger gap by far 
than uh, the gap but, uh, between the sexes. It was uh, a 31 point percentage gap uh, that white men uh, with college educations supported Trump uh, only by uh, a 7% margin and white men without college education supported Trump by a 38% margin. So that, that is a huge difference. Wow. And, you know, we, we, we need to really delve into that and what, what, what is behind that. I interviewed Sharon, Sherrod Brown, Senator from Ohio a while ago and asked him how he was able to win re-election in Ohio by, I think, seven points in a state that just two years before Hillary had lost by eight points. And which every other Democrat had been losing statewide in Ohio, except for Sherrod. And he says the key to his campaigning is always to talk about his phrase, the dignity of work. I think this is where you would put the emphasis, too. I would. I would. I mean, I think we have to look at what has happened to uh, people who do manual labor, to people who work with their hands. You know, initially, uh, that was just about what every, uh, uh, everyone did. Uh, as society grew more technical and, and modernized, there, there became a rift. But as far back as the late 1700s, you began to see uh, something of a revolt and discontent and anger among skilled craftspeople who resented uh, the uh, coming of the factory. And as factory work uh, became somewhat more machine-oriented and the assembly line came along, there was less and less opportunity for them to use their skills and their crafts. Now, in the first part of the 20th century, there was a kind of compensation for that. Uh, these, these folks formed unions, and the unions were able at least to secure them what was then called a family wage. And you could be a good provider um, if you were an auto worker, if you were a steel worker, if you worked in aerospace and a lot of industries, uh, you know, uh, doing, doing that kind of work. Um, then the unions more or less uh, uh, face such opposition that they were not able to counter, that they dwindle to an insignificant portion of, uh, of the workers. And uh, a lot of these guys, you know, were kind of left on their own uh, and, uh, you know, got the feeling, not wrongly, that the level of respect and reward that society accorded them was low and uh, steadily diminishing. And that produces anger, and it should produce anger. But the problem is uh, that anger is often misdirected towards uh, people of different races, and it's misdirected towards what they see as an increasingly alien culture of the upper middle class in this country. Uh, and it's not directed at the financial powers that really we're behind this transform, economic transformation that rendered them essentially without respect and without a uh, decent reward for their labors. And, you know, in, in some ways, this, this caused one of the reactions is what I call the cult of hyper-masculinity. You know, if you can't uh, be a real man uh, bringing in a family wage, well, uh, you, you can you can uh, compensate in other ways, and and those ways have gotten more extreme. So, once upon a time, if you owned a rifle, that was a significant part of your identity. Now, a lot of those folks 
feel that uh, that identity can only be asserted if they own an assault rifle. So it, it <laughs> creates a vicious circle uh, of, of establishing your, uh, your identity and, uh, you know, your worth in your own eyes. Now, you know, I think what we need to do is get back to respecting this work. Uh, and that means adequately compensating it and doing what everything that Sherrod Brown talks about that enables him to win these votes, whereas other Democrats, you know, in recent decades can't. Well, what we know about about changing people's minds, <clears throat> thinking here about our white working class men, and what we know about mobilizing them to vote for Democrats is that face-to-face -face conversations are by far the most effective way of convincing people about politics, much right, better than text class men, everybody, everybody, uh, and, and yeah. much better than text messages or TV ads or phone calls. And, you know, unfortunately, in this election, because of COVID-19, face to face precinct work has become pretty much impossible and, you know, forbidden. And so lots of people are friends are, you know, sending text messages and manning phone banks more than ever before. It has resulted in uh, an unprecedented level of early voting. But you have a fascinating piece uh, at the prospect that there is one exception, at least to this abandonment of face-to-face -face precinct walking. Tell us about that. Yeah, and it's ironic because most of the unions uh, following safety protocols have really gone without their, uh, you know, precinct walking this year. Uh, one union has not, though. One union is out there pounding the pavement, and it's the union that has actually been hit hardest by the pandemic. That's the union of uh, hotel workers and food service workers, the union named Unite Here. Now, historically, Unite Here, particularly it, 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 the hotel uh, local that it has in Las Vegas, has been absolutely key to the Democrats winning uh, Nevada in, uh, or Nevada, as they say, in recent elections. And they are uh, actually d doing massive door-to-door -door work in Nevada and Arizona and Florida and also in Philadelphia. And uh, this is partly because they were able to do this because, first of all, there's a history in this union of, of more or less deeper member involvement than in, in most other unions. They were able to do it because they had already done significant work on safety protocols uh, for their members who have been going back to work in hotels. So they had epidemiologists uh, help them craft their, their walks. They not only wear masks, they wear face shields, they hand masks to the people who come, uh, come to the door. They've been able, normally this is something that financially the union supports itself with 80% of their members still unemployed and not paying dues. Uh, other unions, including some rather conservative ones, have stepped up and made donations to Unite here to enable them, uh, to, enable them to do this. And so this is for a whole, a whole host of reasons. Uh, they have been doing their usual thing, getting members out talking to uh, sometime voters, to Democrats who may or may, may not be inclined to vote, to union members and so on. And, and really, uh, despite all of the obstacles, they are uh, setting records for the biggest ground game in at least two crucial swing states, Nevada and Arizona. 
uh, as as well more recently as in uh, in uh, in Philadelphia in inner city Philadelphia and in the uh, Miami and Orlando uh, areas of Florida. One last thing. The LA Times has a story saying that Beverly Hills has announced it's going to board up and close Rodeo Drive for the three days around the election. I was puzzled by this because I wouldn't think that attacking Rodeo Drive would be like at the top of the list of the, uh, you know, Boogaloo Boys or whoever else we think might Trump asked, suggested that they stand by. Do you have any insight into the, the threat to Rodeo Drive on Election Day? Uh, the short answer is no. Uh, <laughs> I, can't, I can't, figure, can't figure that one out. I think whatever may happen around the election, I don't think the sacking of high-end <laughs> retail stores is going to really uh, be at the top of anyone's uh, to-do list. So I am, I am mystified. But historically, there are things that Beverly Hills has done that have been mystifying, and this just adds to the list. Harold Meyerson, always a pleasure. Thanks for talking with us today. Thank you, John. Take care. It's the same old story. This is Trump Watch. I'm John Wiener, live in L.A. on KPFK and online anytime you want it at trumpwatchpodcast.com. The Trial of the Chicago 7 seems to be the most popular movie in America right now. Of course, that's the Aaron Sorkin film on Netflix about the trial of the leaders of the anti-war protests at the Democratic National Convention in 1968 in Chicago. The indicted were Abby Hoffman, Jerry Rubin, Tom Hayden, Rennie Davis, Bobby Seale, Dave Dellinger, John Freunds, and Lee Weiner. And we are joined now by Lee Weiner. He's a longtime activist and political person with a PhD in sociology, and he's got a wonderful new book out. It's called Conspiracy to Riot, The Life and Times of One of the Chicago Seven. We reached him today at home in Florida. Lee Weiner, welcome to the program. Thank you for having me, John. Well, what were you before you were indicted? <laughs> Less well known. <laughs> um, I was a political. I was political. I was a political organizer. I've been a community organizer in a low-income neighborhood in Chicago for years. Been involved in politics from 1960 on. Though and some of the people on the trial with me were friends. Some of them I met only occasionally. And, and which ones had you been friends with? Jerry Rubin was my oldest friend. Um, we had met um, originally in Israel in 1961, 62, maybe. I forgot. Both, both on the run from families. And, and what was your role in planning for the convention protests? So you were indicted, of course, for conspiracy. What, what did you do? Oh, that was the least of it. Don't let's not forget, I was also indicted for teaching and demonstrating the use of incendiary devices to disrupt interstate traffic. I love that charge. <laughs> um, through Jerry, I met Abs for a couple of years. I bounce uh, off to New York City from Chicago and hang out on the Lower East Side. Abby and I got along great. And so 
when people said, hey, we're going to have demonstrations. So people said, well, can you help? I said, sure, why not? You know, who the hell knew what kind of help anybody would need or what I might be able to offer. But when that started, Abs and Jerry and the rest of the crew were, in those days, my politics required me to have tasks. I needed to do things. There needed to be objectives. Uh, There needed to be a plan. So those kinds of things were happening out of a downtown office run by the Mobilization Against Against the War Mob run by Rennie, who I had also known. He'd been a community organizer in Chicago at the same time I was. Um, I had met Tom uh, on 63rd Street, the old SDS headquarters. So I knew some of those people. They knew me. So I got involved on that side as well. And we all ended up in the park together anyway. And, and then you were indicted by a federal grand jury. One of the first things the Nixon administration did after he took office was bring these indictments. Uh, you were indicted for conspiracy and for uh, incitement and for this teaching incendiary devices charge. Were you surprised when you were indicted? I was not the only person surprised. Everybody was surprised. I mean, we had spent months together. I mean, everybody back and forth, like who's going to be indicted? You know, which women will be indicted? You know, we, you know, we, we, we didn't know we knew. My name never came up. <laughs> I mean, there were plenty of people who should have been and were higher up on the list. I think that my loose lips in terms of things like gasoline and thin glass bottles and the fact that I was a student and therefore could be representative of other crazy students uh, swung the, uh, the award in my direction. <laughs> and of course, most of the trial was not about you and John Freund's, but what was the evidence against you? Um, it was like the evidence against everybody. It was uh, undercover police officers and I, I, I forgot, I think the head of the Red Squad, I've forgotten which police officer was. I got up on stand and said, oh, we've known Lee Weiner for a long time. You know, and here's a nice 21st century lesson back then. They say, okay, now we're going to produce evidence against Lee Weiner. And the FBI's guy went running out and brought in one of those trolley cars that if you're old enough, they used to bring movie projectors and film canisters your classrooms. So they were these double-decker metal thingies filled with, to the top, with paper transcripts of my telephone calls, suggesting that, you know, that people's notions of privacy were probably a little over overrated. And that was like <laughs> 1968, 69. I mean, so clearly now it's a little worse, but a lesson. I mean, they had a photograph I mean, you should understand. So they were saying, I'm a terrible person. Lenny had me facing away from the jury because in those days I had very long, bushy hair and a long beard. I looked like a maniac. If somebody had gotten on an elevator with me, if I was on the elevator, the elevator door opened, they saw me there and they decided to take a different elevator, I would have completely understood. <laughs> completely understood. I mean, I look capable of doing anything. So I was facing away from the jury while they were berating me and saying, I'm a terrible person. And Lenny would, Lenny Wineglass attorneys would, would say, no, he's really, he's like, he's as gentle as a, as a early winter snow. He's light and pleasant, you know, and then they had these photographs taken during the demonstrations and they had a 
they wouldn't show them to the jury. They had to give them to us first. <laughs> and so Lenny was going through the photographs, and I hear him say under his breath, well, there goes that defense, because he'd been <laughs> arguing, arguing nonviolent forever. And he shows me the pictures. Let's put it this way. If I had that picture and, had, and it had been easy to put it onto a T-shirt, print it on a T-shirt, several future ex-wives would have bought twice before trying to hitch up with me. <laughs> I, was, I remember very well when it was taken. It was, uh, I was one of the marshals and, and helping track people from the police. Ha, ah, didn't do that job very well. And we were on a march and a photographer, this photographer was getting in the way of the march. And so I charged him. I mean, I had headed towards him in a fairly aggressive way. And so I looked like they were painting me as a complete maniac, violent human being. So I took that picture and put it in the pages of my book that I had. And so the, the jury never saw that picture. I <laughs> one, one of my kids may still have that picture. <laughs> and, and, and what about the, the incendiary devices? What evidence did they have against you for instructing people in the use of incendiary devices? Well, unfortunately... We're talking about um, the climax of the fighting between the police and the demonstrators was on August 28th, Wednesday night, I think. That next morning, um, I was sprawled on the grass with people who I'd been with on the street the night before. And we were debating, not really debating, we were arguing that we should not allow the police to control the streets. Streets belong to people. And I suggested some ways in which we could contest the ownership of the streets. Uh, Chicago has an underground garage underneath Grant Park, uh, where my car happened to be parked. You know, you have dirty laundry in the car. You have high phosphate soap, like Tide in those days. And you have bottles of, you know, thin bottles of carbonated soda. Those are, that's enough, really, to contest the ownership of the street. Um, and unfortunately, one of the people listening to me talk this way was an undercover police officer. So, yeah, we had reason to suspect that I had bad thoughts. <laughs> okay. Okay. Ch <laughs> changing, <clears throat> changing gears here. Yes, let's do that. <laughs> the um, kind of the most intense moments of the trial came when Judge Julius Hoffman ordered Bobby Seale bound and gagged, and this went on for what three or four days, you were four, yeah, four sitting. Days. You were sitting right up there in front. What was it like to be in the courtroom with a black man in chains and a gag in his mouth? John, what do you think? It was insane and crazy. We had been asked by Bobby. We knew it was coming. We had fairly good reasons to believe that such a, a judge would take this action. And the Panthers and, and Bobby had asked us to do nothing, to contain our outrage and our hurt and our pain and our anger, and to let the confrontation be solely between Bobby and the judge. So what that meant was there was a lot of gripping underneath on the tables. There was a lot of blood drawn from the palms of, palms of your hands because you're driving your fingernails into them. Um, at one point, 
the judge, there was an actual physical confrontation. Jeff Bobby was still able to speak through his gag, and the judge had said to the juror, to the, to the marshals, oh, do your job better. And they rushed to Bobby's chair, and they knocked it over. And Bobby, through his gag, said something like, you're kneeing me in the balls, and that was a ball game. We all got it. And there was um, a physical confrontation between the defendants and the marshals. Uh, it didn't take long. Um, and though, well, we all got contempt charges for lots of things. That particular incident disappeared. Nobody ever mentioned it once again. It was fairly horrible. Thank you. Now let's talk about the Aaron Sorkin movie. I have two questions for you. What sure. Did, what did Aaron Sorkin get right? And what did Aaron Sorkin get wrong? We've only got a few minutes here. I, I'm, I'm easy. First of all, the movie stole my heart, won my heart. Um, the, what I, what, what in, my, in my book, I have it as well. And it was the one thing that I wanted to be in the movie, which is when Abby is asked after a ludicrous testimony against him. Uh, about a hundred thousand, taking a hundred thousand dollars and leaving town, and the the city was producing that as like the federal government was saying, "Oh, that was serious." So there was a press conference afterwards, and people, reporters were saying, "Hey, what you what you have got?" One guy wouldn't give up and kept on saying to Abby, "Well, what was your price?" And finally, he was still with a smile on his face. Abby said, "What's my price for the revolution? My life." And that scene is both real and it was in the movie. You know, my heart. Now, overall, look, I think the movie both showed and told an important thing that people can, should, and must resist injustice. And, and they can do it, whether that's on the streets and with brutal police officers or in a controlled and biased court. So I think that message the movie conveys strongly and well. So, you know, other stuff, you know, yeah, if Jerry was still alive, would he, be, would he be freaked in terms of how he was shown in the movie? Of course he would. But Ren, I guess, is, uh, I think I did hear that Renny was like a little pissed that he was, that he was presented as like, like a nerd. Okay, fine. Tom, if, if you pay attention, I saw the movie twice. I mean, Netflix was very kind. Um, I watched the first time straight because I knew people like you or other people would ask me about it. The other time I then watched it totally stoned. And um, at the very, very, very end of the credits, I mean, you have to be really completely wrecked if you're going to stay that long. But <laughs> I, I was. There is a little thing about uh, Sorkin says he gives thanks to three people during development. And one of those people is Tom. So, as I said, I think, I think the movie, it's not a documentary. It's a movie. <laughs> yeah, that's a movie. And some things that people, so, some, of my, some of my kids have called and said, Daddy, did Abby really say that on the stand? I said, yeah, as a matter of fact, you did. And somebody was very upset. He said, that stuff about the museum was full of shit, full of crap. I said, well, actually, not so much. I mean, <laughs> Jerry and Nancy and Abby and Anita were at the Museum of Science and Industry in Chicago, and they actually ran into Schultz and his daughter. There. Now, the dialogue, of course, is completely made up. But, you know, not quite, quite as much of a fantasy out of your head as you think it might be. So, yeah, there's things right and there's things wrong. But I think basically the movie is um, 
a very strong effort to convince people that being political is both the moral and right thing to do. It's the strong thing to do. It's the necessary thing to do, no matter whether it's on the streets or in the courts. I liked it. In conclusion, yes, it was conceived 15 years ago, and it took, as many things in Hollywood do, a long time. And what, what a coincidence that it should come out at this historical moment. So what do you think at all? What does it mean to see it today? Sometimes the goddess works her wonders in, in perfect ways. And this is one of those times. I think the timing of the film would be difficult to figure out if, how it could be better. And I'm hoping that it moves people. The truth of the matter is that even electing the nicest and best and most well-intended people to the Congress or the presidency, it does not get the job done. You know, it's not, there's, there's work that needs to be done on the streets, in communities, that the most well-intended, liberal, socially-minded um, congressperson is not going to be able to get the work done. So I hope people can become, will, that will encourage people to be political and stay that way. Lee Weiner, he's still a political person, and he's got a wonderful book out, Conspiracy to Riot, The Life and Times of One of the Chicago Seven. Lee, it's been great talking to you today. Thank you, John. Thank you for having me. Take care. It's the same old story. This is Trump Watch. I'm John Wiener, live in L.A. on KPFK and online anytime you want it at trumpwatchpodcast.com. This week, more than ever, we need a bit of relief from the election and its attendant anxieties. Maybe there's something on TV, something funny. For comment, we turn to Ella Taylor. Of course, she's written for the L.A. Weekly, NPR.org, and the New York Times. Recently, the L.A. Times op-ed page. Ella, welcome back. Delighted to be here, John. Well, I wanted some relief, maybe a comedy, so I turned to the new Borat movie, Sasha Baron Cohen's return with his memorable character from, in quotes, Kazakhstan. But of course, turns out it's all about President McDonald Trump. Let's talk about Borat's subsequent movie film. Yes, I, I was thinking maybe you might uh, change the title of your show to uh, McDonald Trump Watch. <laughs> <laughs> we'll see whether there's any reason to in a, in a week or so. Um, I went to re to watch the movie for a second time just to refresh. And after a few minutes of watching it, I realized I was watching the first Borat movie. <laughs> um, and got a fun fact from that, that the police were called on Sasha Baron Cohen 92 times during the making of the first Borat movie. <laughs> so I'm assuming that uh, they, there will be far more times because he has upped the ante, if that was possible, even more. Uh, Sasha Baron Cohen, uh, we were in the same 
youth movement in London, only several decades apart. So I know where he got a lot of his influences from. But he works on the principle of um, most out there comedians, which is that when it comes to offensive, there are no halfway measures. (laughs) (laughs) Well put. You know, the, the plot of this one is a little bit like the others in the sense that this is quote unquote, a road movie through Mm. America, just as the first one was, with the plot such as it it is that um, Borat has been released from a Kazakh prison. As we know, the actual Kazakh government did not appreciate his first movie. Uh, in order to take a present to um, Mike Pence, Vice President Mike Pence, so that he can get in good with um, the Trump regime and become one of the strongman club. Um, (laughs) Now, in short order, he loses the the present, which is a quote-unquote sexy monkey, and decides that instead he's going to give his daughter to President Mike Pence. Very hard to talk about the plot without falling about laughing. Um, and so, uh, and he, he, she is played, by the way, by Maria Bakalova, who is just a total star. She's a young Bulgarian actress, and she looks astonishingly like Tracy Ullman, as, as many people have pointed out. But she exudes this kind of nutball joyousness that is complete sheer delight. She throws herself into this part and she almost walks away with the movie, which is rather difficult when it comes to Sasha Baron Cohen. <laughs> so um, she's very funny. And uh, of course, he has a dubious erotic relationship with his daughter, his sister, his wife and his mother. <laughs> as in the first movie. And his strategy, as always, is to trap or inveigle his targets into self-revelation. Sure, our listeners will have heard about the Giuliani episode, which uh, just in case those who haven't seen the movie, I'm not going to reveal what actually happens. But uh, let's just say that Giuliani embarrasses himself to the max. (laughs) Um, But as he goes across, he's going across a very different America this time. And that is the serious message behind this movie which is that all the quiet things that he got people to say the first time have now been said out loud. So there's absolutely no problem getting people to say it. So on the one hand, it's the same old critique of of Kazakhstan's reprehensible attitude towards women on on every level. And on the other hand, um, he is going across an incredibly troubling America, uh, making fun. As, as with the first movie, you cannot tell who's, who's an actor and who's a real person. But I really got to say some of these have to be real people. <laughs> the startling thing is the affability with which they receive him. And uh, I think you pointed out when we were talking that at one point he goes into <laughs> a bakery um, to get a cake for his daughter. And he, with a perfectly straight face, he asks the woman behind the counter, for an icing that says the Jews will not replace us and she doesn't bat an eyelid. (laughs) So on the one hand, there's this feel for the ridiculous and on the other hand, he's showing us just how low we have sunk um, since the first movie. 
and this time the anti-Semitism that was uh, characterized by was was put in the in the lap of the Kazakhs last time is put in the lap of the Americans this time. Yeah. Um, and the racism of of all kinds. And it takes a very kindly but but firm older black woman to show his daughter who um, has escaped from him and become something of a feminist. <laughs> There's some very funny scenes with uh, Republican women that she has and uh, and place that in, in the lap of the Americans also. And it takes this woman to get him to mend his ways in, in ways that I, I've got to say are rather touching and, and moving. It's a very delightful movie. It is not for the faint of heart. <laughs> That's but, for sure. <laughs> but there is something about his persona that for all the awful things that he does in this movie and all the people that he embarrasses and so on, for much of the movie, he's disguised as he goes across America as in dungarees and a horrible ginger wig. (laughs) Uh, He meets some frat boys, he meets some white supremacists and so on. uh, And everybody thinks he's great, which is very disturbing indeed. Well, I have one, I've had one reservation about the Borat films from the beginning, which is I don't like it when he goes after the the low-hanging fruit of these sort of working class, minimum wage people who are just trying to do their job and get through their day. And on the one hand, the bakery thing is hilarious. On the other hand, the woman is a complete nobody. She's probably getting, you know, $14 an hour and just wants to go home. So her job is to do what the customers want. And, you know, there's a big difference between embarrassing, ridiculing, holding up to our disapproval, that kind of person, and going after really powerful people, which he does. Most of the movie is about Vice President Michael Pence, Rudy Giuliani, uh, the anti-abortion forces which set up fake uh, women's health clinics. There's a fantastic scene exposing their efforts. Yeah, there's a fantastic scene where he brings his daughter to a bogus women's health clinic, which is actually an anti-abortion front. Uh, That's the kind of thing that I think he does best and is really important and valuable to see what these people will put up with from Borat. In- I will just say, sorry to interrupt, that uh, if you look at the old movie, the first movie, which is also on Amazon Prime, where you can see this too, there are notations on the side that make it very, very clear that we aren't really sure which of these people are actors and which are not. So, and the same with this woman, you know, behind the counter at the bake, bake shop. I'm perfectly willing to believe that she did this, you know, but it's that's something that is quite deliberately fudged throughout the movie. So. And, and there are some people who clearly figure out or, or who seem to see what is going on. And for instance, the, um, when he takes his daughter to the clothing store and says to the woman clerk, where is the no means yes section? And she totally cracks up because it's so funny. And uh, also at the, when she wants, he wants to get his daughter uh, breast implants 
and it's too expensive. And he says, well, couldn't, could, could we, could we make it, get a discount if we had it paid for in part, if we brought perverts in to watch the operation <laughs> and the woman behind the counter <clears throat> says the only perverts who would be allowed in the operating room are nurses and doctors. <laughs> well, you know, so, so those are two people who I think are real and, you know, kind of responding in a, the way conceivably we might. I think that also, you know, he's now so well known in the interim between the first movie and the second that there aren't that many people who don't know who this guy is. He has such a distinctive look. And I will add that he is talking as ever in near perfect Hebrew. Yes, he is. Really? Uh, yeah, I speak Hebrew and uh, and his Hebrew is very good, even though he's from England. Um, and he speaks almost the entire time in Hebrew. Maria Bakalova, I assume, is speaking in Bulgarian, but I couldn't tell because I don't speak either Kazakh or, or Bulgarian. Have and you gone to have you looked at the closed captions? This is this is I thought I got to the closed captions by mistake. I was trying to pause or something like that. There's only one closed captioning available, and it's in some totally made-up language. <laughs> you can't pick Spanish or you know Chinese, the usual things that are available, and uh, it's it's another kind of funny thing that they thought of doing. And somebody's gone through the entire movie and written this gibberish as the subtitles. Yeah. It makes you wonder how long it took to make the movie, which I assume can be found out somewhere on the on the internet, because every scene involves such intricate setups. Uh, and it was uh, shot on location. So he really, you know, he really did go uh, across America. So there's all of that, but it's so well put together. And I think that the zaniness is the, is the redeeming, you know, feature here. And it seems like he probably started this before COVID-19, but it's obviously finished during the COVID epidemic. And in fact, the concluding scenes, he plays with the COVID idea. But there's, I mean, in some ways, the most, you know, one of the climactic confrontations of the movie is when he, Borat, now dressed in a Trump fat suit, rushes the ballroom of the American, what's it called, uh, the Conservative Political Action Committee, CPAC, National Conference, where Pence is speaking and he tries to give Pence his daughter as a gift and gets rushed out by the security guards. Right. Uh, this took a lot of work to pull this one off. But the speech that Pence is giving is that the government has the coronavirus under control and that there's only 15 cases in the United States. Mm -hmm. And in fact, that is much more shocking to linger on than anything that Sasha Baron Cohen does with his daughter. Yeah. Uh, so in a way, the film inadvertently reminds us of just how incompetent, how criminal the Trump administration has been in, in its treatment of the virus, even though they try to work the virus into the plot as the funny climax. Yes, yeah. And, I, you know, the fact that he never breaks out of character, z <laughs> um, <laughs> And neither does Maria Bakalova, um, I think, makes it all that much more appalling. In a sense, this is a very serious movie. We have time for one more. Yes. 
there's a remake of Rebecca, which was the uh, a remake of the Alfred Hitchcock movie, which was a transcendent piece of misogyny, is brilliantly directed, uh, based on the novel by Daphne du Maurier. Now, I want to point out that the story itself is basically a romance novel. You know, this young woman from the sticks uh, meets a very rich man. It's just like Pride and Prejudice. Um, he's got a granite jaw uh, and a whole raft full of secrets that come out. But I think that the, both the book and the two movies should have been renamed Mrs. D because the dominant character in all of these is Mrs. Danvers. She is played here by Kristen Scott Thomas, um, who is just marvelous. Um, she's as you know, she's like radiating great gobs of frost <laughs> um, while playing the role very, very quietly. Uh, unfortunately, the film as a whole is a very watery remake of the original. Rebecca, uh, who was played by Joan Fontaine in the original, is played by the British actress Lily Allen, um, who's a pretty good actress, but she goes around with this single expression on her face, which is, what have I done now? Because uh, at the beginning, you know, she's very subservient and, and scared and timid and so on and easily manipulated um, by Mrs. Danvers. And um, Maxim de Winter is played by Army Hammer, who is actually a much more versatile actor than is commonly thought, given how insanely good looking he is. Um, he's actually pretty good the problem really is with the director, Ben Wheatley. Um, he's applied an incredibly um, cliched score to this. There's some pentangle music and some stuff from Pennies from Heaven that just doesn't feel right for a, he doesn't seem to understand just how noir <laughs> this story is. He's grafted, a, you know, she, she goes to Manderley and uh, thinks she's going to be happy ever after, but she's got to deal both with, the previous wife, uh, and she thinks she's a pale version of the previous wife. But most of all, she has to deal with Mrs. Danvers, who's always been, for me, the most interesting character in this whole shebang. He's grafted on some rather tentative feminism. Uh, at the end, it's a rather feeble stab in which Mrs. Danvers, when the entire uh, denouement is exposed, and her attachment to Rebecca and the lesbian connection is not really uh, brought out in any, any sense. This is clearly made for a very mainstream uh, general audience. She, said, she says she lived her life as she pleased, my Rebecca. Now, I cannot for the life of me remember, and I didn't have time to check whether that's in the movie and the novel, but it just seems very out of place here. I mean, yes, Rebecca grows a spine uh, and takes down all known enemies while protecting her man who turns out to be a pussycat and violently in love with her. But it's still very much a romance novel. You know, this, the last line makes you cringe, you know. It's an, I don't care about money. All I care about is, is love. And yet the whole film is really about wealth and, and uh, privilege. And it's a very... Um, 
it's a very pallid version. Of course, you know, you're filling very big shoes with Alfred Hitchcock. And I love that movie, despite its, its misogyny. You know, women are either whores or, or uh, Madonnas in most of his films. And his treatment of women off screen was very well known. But it is a masterpiece uh, in its way. And I'm sure can be seen on various uh, streaming channels as well. And, and of course, you know, some of it is very dated. I mean, poor Army Hammer has to say at the beginning of the movie, uh, I'm asking you to marry me, you little fool. Now, that may have sounded great in, <laughs> in the 1940s, but it doesn't sound very great in, in 2020. And you can practically see his lips twitching as he says it, uh, because it, doesn't, it should have been erased from the, the screenplay. You know, it's not boring exactly, because, you know, this is a great story, and, Miss, and Mrs. Danvers is so mesmerizing. You can see in Kristen Scott Thomas's icy performance um, that she's influenced so many other characters of this kind, including, including um, Leslie Manville's transcendently um, evil uh, performance in Paul Thomas Anderson's Phantom Thread and many, many other characters. So she's a huge character in, in, in cinema, uh, world cinema, really. Um, but somehow it's not really uh, pursued in this movie. So it's, it's, you know, Saturday night, it's perfectly good, presentable uh, film to watch, but uh, not really uh, Rebecca. And where can we see Kristen Scott Thomas as Mrs. Danvers in the Pallid Rebecca remake? We can see it on Netflix, so it's no big deal to find it or, or watch it. And, you know, it's always interesting to make comparisons. That's not just for film critics, but I think for everybody with something that with a film that is so beloved as Hitchcock's film, um, it falls short, but you can have a lot of fun uh, drawing the comparisons. Ella Taylor, our Virus Time TV critic. Ella, always a pleasure. Thanks again. Very much enjoyed myself, John. Well, that's it for today's Trump Watch. I want to thank our engineer, D'Angelo Jones, and our producer, Renee Reynolds. As always, we thank Ry Cooter for our theme music, Mambo Sinuendo. Hey, Trump Watchers, if you missed part of the show or of any of our recent shows, listen online anytime you want at trumpwatchpodcast.com. Trump Watch returns next week at the same time on the same station with more talk about what Trump is actually doing, not just what he's tweeting. I'm John Wiener. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.